The Kennedy Paradox, Chapter 17. Aboard the Rex, Straits of Florida, March 3rd, 1961, 4.15 p.m. The sinking sun on the western Caribbean horizon added an orange tinge to the red and white amphibious plane as it circled over the steely basin. Over a dozen Coast Guard boats were like ducks vying for breadcrumbs. This is a clusterfuck, complained the frustrated Zamka following the plane with his binoculars. They're laughing at us from that plane. Zamka, we've stopped four boats out of Key West, said Turtling from the radio. Zamka squinted and then exhaled. The plane trekked further south toward Cuba. Where do I bring this boat? asked Bayo at the ship's wheel on the upper level. I need to call Dietrich, said Zamka. He started toward Turtling, but Turtling stood with the headphone to his ear. What do you hear, Spence? Turtling's black eyes were like an animal in the forest, sensing danger. Dan Preslin is sending out a general message. Let me see that, said Zamka as he placed the headphone over his ear. Patch followed the little white plane with the binoculars. Then he lowered the binoculars and faced Mankiewicz. All of this may not even be related to Higgins, Ray. This whole Cuban thing has everyone on edge, Patch. Mankiewicz chucked his cigar stub into the air and it disappeared into the ocean. Patch casually looked north. He studied the binoculars when he caught a glimpse of the two men in a green fishing boat tracing the waves. Another plane approached from the east. Over there! Over there! I see it, said Zamka by the radar. Bring the goddamn boat around! Savage, with an automatic weapon in his hands, emerged screaming from the shadows. He set up a position next to the railing. Let's get the bastards! Hold your fire! shouted Zamka, still at the short wave. We may not have time for other vessels. We're heading up there. How fast, Bale? Twenty knots. Twenty knots. We aren't that far. You might want to reconsider scrambling jets out of homestead. Right. Right. Okay. More Cubans and the two servicemen also brandishing rifles lined up next to Savage below. Another soldier manned the machine gun in back. What do you think? Asked Turtling. They got the jump on us. Bart says there's no way they're going to send jets up from Homestead. Kennedy is already scaling back the invasion. Hatch did not remember an invasion of Cuba in 1961. It's a race between that plane landing in the ocean and us getting over there first. Again, Zamka positioned the binoculars in place. I'm sure that plane is a Cessna 172 Skyhawk, but I can't read the markings from here. Patch spotted the single green fishing boat as it circled into the forward area. I see him. I did too. Doc Crewcut guy, just like the photograph, said Minkowitz. Zamka, said Savage on the walkie-talkie. We need to start shooting. Zamka spoke into the walkie-talkie as he neared the railing. And spend all your ammo out of range? He cupped his hand. Sergeant, just hold up. Another man on the fishing boat caught Patch's attention. Younger and thinner, the sandy-haired Eric Bonheim stood with Higgins on the boat. Bonheim? What? asked Mankiewicz. The tall guy in the boat. He'll be there when the other terrorist kills you at Sector 13 25 years from now. Mankiewicz raised his brow. Then he's an East German. His name is Eric Bonheim. The hell is he doing here now? Kincaid says the tall man in the boat is an East German. Grimacing Savage turned with his gun pointed at him. 
How do you know this man, Kincaid? That's not relevant, said Patch, lifting the binoculars again. Kincaid is a Soviet agent, sent here to stir up trouble. You're down here to screw up our suborbital flight at Canaveral, aren't you, Kincaid? Shut up, yelled Zanka. Without the binoculars, Patch visually tracked the circling plane, and Zamka turned to turtling. Another few minutes, and we can be within distance to hit him. We should have had more men out here, Patch said to Mankiewicz. Patch, you don't understand. Kennedy's caught in the corner. He's got Khrushchev breathing down his neck. The Russians will have a shipment of MiGs and weapons in Havana by the 15th. Bonheim is the Soviet agent, said Patch. Mankiewicz lit another cigar. Well, that makes sense. Makes sense, Ray, that he and Higgins would link up after the Soviet Union fell apart. Fell apart? Asked Savage, now next to the two men. Fat chance. We're talking about the Russians, Kincaid. Why don't you just chill out? Patch shouted. As Savage went to grab his shirt, Patch unloaded a right cross that sent Savage to the deck. Zamka's mouth hung open and Turtling stared at Savage, groggy on the metal deck. I'm sorry said Patch to Zemka. Savage sat up and moved his jaw. Don't be, <laughs> replied Zamka with a grin. Savage stood and sneered at Patch. You'll get your chance, Kincaid. His chance, asked Mankiewicz. Savage climbed the ladder to the top of the bridge. Zamka joined them at the railing. He yelled while looking through the binoculars. Higgins, I see Higgins on that boat. Oh, that's a real news bullet, chuckled Patch. We have to fire at him, Zamka, said Turtling. Not yet. Still a distance away from the circling aircraft and the bobbing fishing boat, the wrecks chugged at full throttle. Smoke formed a plume into the ocean air. What would you estimate that distance, Ray? asked Zamka. Mankiewicz spoke with a cigar in his mouth. No more than a mile and a half. I agree. Okay, Spence. Tell Savage and the men to fire when the goddamn plane lands. The sun highlighted both the plane and the fishing vessel. Patch waited with everyone until the plane had changed its pattern. As if coming in for a conventional airport landing, the amphibious plane leveled out and swooped down parallel to the boat, splashing across the waves as it slowed in the water. Ropes were thrown out from the fishing boat. Now, cried Zamka. When Savage did not fire, Zamka positioned himself on the rail and fired his rifle toward the boat and the plane. Fire! howled Savage. The machine gun produced a attitat, attitat, attitat. The soldiers and the Cubans commenced firing, but the onslaught did not deter Higgins and Bonheim. Savage stood atop the roof. Hit the plane! Hit the plane! Never mind the friggin' boat! Another rifle barrage erupted as Savage leaped near Patch and then down the stairs. He fired his weapon just as someone launched a bazooka shell from the back. A huge explosion moved the water through the sky less than a hundred yards from the boat. Zamker emerged from the stairs and joined them. He turned toward the plane, ultimately looking out the forward window and back toward Savage. What's the problem? Several men ran out of ammunition and the machine gun fire ceased. Savage shouted as he looked toward the plane. That guy is going over to the Russians! The plane, moving less than a mile away, skimmed the waves. Patch stood with Mankiewicz at the front railing, but anger ripped his stomach. A dozen yards below, Savage compressed his tense face and raised his hands as the plane became airborne and lifted into the sky. Patch kicked the bottom rail. Not good, 
Mankiewicz stepped back for a second and stared at Zamker near the front of the boat. Patch folded his hands on the brass support. The little white plane now, flying below the puffy clouds, carried Dr. Stephen Higgins on the first leg of a 25-year journey destined to leave United States cities decimated in the future. He and Bornheim flew south, around 90 miles away from the mainland, to Cuba. Time has many passageways, said Mankiewicz. The salty air blew back Patch's hair. Get me to the Cuban camp, Ray. Then I can talk about killing the head terrorist from 1986. Mankiewicz's mouth slightly opened and he raised his brow. He squinted in the twilight and nodded. I'll pass that info on, Patch. I honestly don't know what the hell they're going to do with you now. Patch nodded and leaned on the railing as he gazed south again. Time disappeared with the bug dot plane against the billowed clouds. At least if he were retrograded back to 1986, someone in 1961 needed to know about Carlos Sanchez. With Higgins now in Soviet hands, Patch had to kill Carlos, and perhaps members of organized crime could help him do it. Miami, Florida, March 4, 1961, 12.17 a.m. Three Cubans drove Patch away from the docks after midnight. The van quickly moved toward the brightly lit skyscrapers. The Flamingo Lounge's pink neon sign flashed against the rippling channel water. Patch leaned toward the front seat as the van slowed at the circular drive and stopped under a convoluted white canopy. Patch looked at his fatigues and wondered how they would admit him to such a fancy restaurant. A young guy with a black shirt and white cocky strutted toward the van. He had gold chains on his neck and silver jewelry on his wrists. The side doors opened and he smiled at Patch. Right this way, come with me, Chico. Who am I meeting with? I really wouldn't worry my little self about that. Patch pressed his lips and moved ahead of him through the brass frame doors. A cigarette haze saturated the air-conditioned atmosphere. The guy motioned him across a black rug to oak stairs to his right. They moved up three floors to a smaller lounge with a long glass window overlooking the Miami Beach skyscrapers. A dark-haired man in a gray suit slid out of the enclosed red leather booth surrounded by floor lights. Captain Kincaid, my name is Frank Regano. Regano had a firm handshake. Thank you for meeting with me, Mr. Regano. My pleasure. Have a seat. Patch sat across from him on the soft leather seat. Regano ordered drinks from a little waiter in a dark suit without asking Patch what he wanted to drink. Who exactly are you, Mr. Regano? I'm an attorney. I represent Mr. Trafficante, Mr. Marcello, and others. Okay. Listen, I've been briefed that Castor has targeted my clients as well as Mr. Giancana. Patch wondered if Regano doubled as an intelligence agent. Okay. The waiter set down two martinis and huge glasses. You don't believe me that I am who I say I am. I just don't know. Well, you'll have to use your own best judgment, and I can assure you that my clients are very grateful for this information, he said as he sipped the martini. You can even say they are indebted to you. My main goal is to kill this terrorist. I would say, Mr. Kincaid, that is our mutual goal. Where exactly did you get this information? Patch grinned and looked away. I think my credibility would be compromised if I revealed that. We're aware of your time travel cover, and we know about your girlfriend's story. 
Most importantly, we know you have no background, which is quite astonishing in itself. You guys don't miss a beat, he said, and then he slurped the martini. How do I know your people will go after this man? I assure you they will take appropriate measures. Patch inhaled and then folded his hands. His name is Carlos Sanchez, and I assure you the threat is real. He's part of Castro's G2 intelligence network. Pagano wrote down Carlos's name into a black notebook. Then he signaled to the waiter and made a telephone gesture with his hand. The waiter quickly brought a white phone over the table and plugged it into the wall. Thank you, Gino. He spun a number on the gold rotary dial. He waited. Then someone answered on the other end. I have the name. Carlos Sanchez, a.k.a. part of Castro's G2. Yes, of course. Mr. Traficanti wishes to speak with you. Me? asked Patch. Regano nodded and handed the phone to Patch. Hello? Good evening, Captain Keith This is Santo Traficanti. Nice to meet you, Mr. Traficanti. I am personally indebted to you, Captain. Fidel Castro has no respect for human life. He does not deserve to live, and neither does this man Sanchez, the leopard. We have contacts on the ground in Cuba. I was there in Havana for many years. We will find Sanchez and take care of the problem. Is there anything I can do for you, my good friend? Kill Carlos Sanchez. That is a promise I will gladly fulfill. Good night. Good night. He handed the phone back to Regano. I think we'll make great progress tonight, yes. I will. Good night. He set the phone back on the receiver and leaned toward Patch. You've made a friend for life, Mr. Kincaid. Santo Traficanti will do his best to take care of Sanchez. Good. Carlos Sanchez must die. At least 15 men, all armed and very few speaking English, were around or inside the little stucco house in the Coconut Grove section of Miami. They pushed Patch into a bedroom at the end of the small hallway. The door slammed and someone locked it from the outside. When he turned on the ceramic bureau lamp, he saw bars across the window. He splashed cool water across his sweaty face. Now for the first time, he believed that Carlos Sanchez would be killed. He used the bathroom toilet, then he leaped under the mattress and fell into a deep sleep.